Hello and welcome back everybody to DevOps for Everyone. Today I'm joined by John Hammond. Uh, before we get to the chat, I just want to mention our sponsor, InterQuest Group. So IQ is a professional staffing firm that cover tech, products and sales vacancies in the UK, Europe and the US. IQ success over the past decade has been built on successfully delivering contingent recruitment solutions to clients from various sectors like fintech, SaaS startups and the public sector. However, We've recently faced something in the staffing industry that no one really saw coming. So while delivering on ad hoc contingent vacancies is still a really important part of IQ's business, we've now created a new unit to service those clients looking to create talent rather than simply headhunt it. This new higher trained deployer model essentially provides the most in-demand talent for a third of the price, while at the same time upskilling and professionally training these people in your exact tech stack ready to be deployed within a few short weeks. So for more information on this or to speak with a specialist consultant covering tech product or sales for an introduction. Now, on with the pod. But really happy that you've joined today. I know that you're a busy guy. You were saying offline about how busy you are at this time of year, um, especially being summer and people going away. So I think it's really, really good to have someone like yourself on who's working at you know AWS because normally these types of businesses and these podcasts that I do are with founders or engineering leaders yeah. from startups. It's a really interesting spin on it today. So thanks for being here, mate. Cool, thank you. Yeah, I mean, you know, from, from my side of things, I think it's fantastic. I think things like this are a great idea to, to talk to the community and kind of, you know, really have those discussions about where we see. I mean, I think we've, we've got quite a unique view on the industry um, in terms of both the breadth and depth that we get to see. Um, so hopefully can give some good bits of opinions to, to the trends that we're seeing overall. Perfect. So let's jump straight in then. Do you want to just give an intro yeah. of who you are, what your Kubernetes experience is and what your current role is? Yeah, definitely. So, uh, so John Hammonds, I've been with AWS for around 22, about 22 months now or so. So I lead the compute business for UK and Ireland for us, um, which is a pretty interesting broad area, if I'm honest. So if I look at um, what does that mean? Effectively, it's a relatively large percentage of our overall UK business. Um, and I run all different businesses which sit under the kubecute umbrella so you know a really wide range of stuff and that's all of our ec2 networking um serverless modern applications so containers so all of ecs eks fargate um, and then also a load of um, really interesting slightly newer bits around computing so all of our high performance computing uh, our visual computing over our modern apps as well and I'm very pleased that I get also to run our quantum computing business for the UK and autonomous vehicles and autonomous systems, which we're growing at the moment, which is quite, quite interesting. Background before that, um, I've been in tech since I was literally before I could read and write, if I'm honest. So I started it all out on a BBC Micro back when I was three, programming basic, uh, got very very into the world of um, the Amiga and the PC, programming demos on Motorola 6800, um, did computer science at uni, and then... Subsequently, um, did loads of consult, good contracting roles. So was um, one of the lead architects on London Stock Exchange. Um, did DevOps before it was called DevOps, I like to think. So back in the back in Credit Suisse, I was running a, a bunch of a platform services team that effectively was an early DevOps team before it was um, as fashionable as it is now. And then went on and ran infrastructure for Standard Chartered. Um, and then finally, before Accenture, uh, before uh, AWS, I should say, was a managing director over in Accenture. So I used to run the DevOps and full stack engineering business in the UK. So hopefully I've got, a, got kind of an interesting view of things from both the technical side and the business side. In terms of, of Docker, 
um, and Kubernetes. You had a really long relationship with those guys. I mean, we, um, so if I look back in the the mists of time, as much as now it feels that that Docker is just something that people expect, people just expect containers to be there and expect the orchestration around uh, Kubernetes to be there. So it was quite involved with uh, with Docker, had interviewed uh, conversations with the CEO back when it was Ben Gulab back in, uh, when would it have been? Would have been, I'm trying to think, it's before I had any children, which is where my memory goes back. So it would have been back in 2014, 2015. Um, so we saw containers as being a fantastic solution to the, the kind of software packaging problem um, for effectively test environments. So it's been, been quite interesting seeing the growth of both Docker themselves, the, you know, all the interesting stuff that came with Kubernetes. Um, and there's some, you know, there's some fantastic, fantastic pieces of how Kubernetes started around that. And then looking, we used to work closely with folk over at Rancher, who've now been purchased by SUSE to work out how to do that kind of large scale orchestration of it. I mean, yeah, I think um, it's very interesting when you see the large change in almost tech substrate that's uh, started to happen with Kubernetes, where people are viewing Kubernetes as this kind of underlying platform that will underpin all architecture. And I think, um, I, I do completely agree with some aspects of that. I think there's, um, I think sometimes there's an aspect of people use almost this CV driven development around Kubernetes where they, they fit it into things where it's not necessarily needed. Um, but overall, I am a massive proponent of it. I think, you know, having a, um, a standard orchestration and execution framework that works over multiple apps is is extraordinarily powerful. And I think one that um, there's all kinds of interesting stuff that we've done with things like ACK. I think KubeVert has been fantastic. And I think actually more and more Kubernetes will become this, this data center operating system effectively that spreads across multiple services. So yeah, done it, done it quite some time. Um, you know, as much as I'm in a management role now, still stay really hands-on. I, I like playing about with stuff. I've just got my sort of new newest toy I've got is a, a Steam Deck where I've started to, to play around with that to try and get back into the world of, of gaming. And I've got a load of different tech things sitting around the house that I've uh, built, which is quite fun. That's really interesting. I mean, that background there, you know, you've obviously worked for some big companies. You mentioned London Stock Exchange, mentioned Accenture, now AWS. But it's interesting as well to know or to hear that you still stay hands-on with Kubernetes, especially when you're working at a manager level at a big company like AWS. Yeah. Is that something that the company drive or is that you just saying, I want to still stay oh, relevant? It's a bit of both, honestly. I mean, you know, the, one of the fantastic things about working for Amazon, we really are a company full of builders. So the, you know, there's this concept of um, this builder mentality that we have that we genuinely do want people that create things. Um, partly for me, it's 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 what I enjoy, if I'm honest. So I kind of got into tech because I like understanding how things work. I loved. I used to um, drive my parents crazy by basically taking apart everything that they could that I could find. So from you know, <laughs> I, I very very well remember my parents coming down and being and regularly swearing at me, or well, not swearing, necessarily swearing at me, but but telling me off quite sternly for taking apart the remote control or taking apart my. Um, I had like a, an old like a, an old cassette Walkman and I remember just un finding a screwdriver and underscrewing every single part of this thing that I could find because I just I just wanted to know how it works and you know I still kind of do if I look at if I look at what's on my desk in front I've got like a a Paul Nagotchi, um a Wi-Fi access point thing that I built the other week. I've got like a um, a breadboard for a um, a synthesizer that I was putting together. So I just I just like tech and I think actually um the only way that you can stay relevant in this world to a large extent or for me anyway is just playing with it like I, I like what i do and 
you know, it's fantastic. I mean, this really interesting situation. I get to play with all these different new technologies, everything from you know spinning up quantum computers on a regular basis to helping um, helping build large high performance computing systems. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm I'm very very lucky to be in a an environment where I can kind of not necessarily play, but I can uh, I can have fun and learn at the same time, which is which is pretty pretty cool actually. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think those kind of environments definitely foster the best in, in sort of people and, and communities as well, because I know obviously you're big in the community. One other thing, just before we move on to the questions that I have for you, is you mentioned something uh, right at the beginning where you spoke about the kind of projects you worked on and you said about autonomous vehicles and the whole yeah. autonomous world in general. This is something that fascinates me because I don't really see any ceiling to this in terms of what you can automate and where autonomous vehicles come in, you know, autonomous yeah. working, you know, the way that the world's changing. So, where do you see that going in terms of? Oh, kind of- I, I think that's a, that's a great. That's something I could talk about at length. Um, <laughs> you know, it is amazing how far autonomous vehicles have come. So we we partner quite publicly with a bunch of bunch of different people, um, F1 from Mobileye to Level Five, um, and we do a lot of effectively a lot of large scale training for autonomous vehicles is executed across AWS. Um, and I think that's going to continue more. I mean, one of definitely the changes that has happened over time is the amount of compute needed to build these very large neural nets is is quite interesting. And for the companies doing it, they want to be able to take that that capacity on demand, use it, and spin it up. So we're, so we're quite involved in a number of different ways. Where do I think it's going to go? Um, personally, I th- and it's one of these things because I feel like we've always been two years away from it. Um, but I think we genuinely are probably about one to two years away from autonomous vehicles hitting mainstream in a number of Western Western markets. Um, you know, if I look at, I um, I bought myself a, te- a couple of years ago, I bought myself a Tesla, partly because, you know, wanted to go slightly green, wanted to get an electric car, and then also partly because I wanted to see firsthand and experience what I think is one of the, the pinnacles of autonomous vehicles you can buy. And it is, what what is out there now is truly amazing. You know, the fact that I can do motorway drives and 95% of the drive is basically not hands off, but you just kind of you know take keeping rough attention and nudging the steel, but effectively the car is driving itself. Um, I think you will I think autonomous taxis and the like, you're seeing penetration with Waymo and other folks over in certain areas of the states already. You know, if you look at what's happening in China, there's huge autonomous vehicle fleets that are there. Um, I think autonomous vehicles will become a very real, uh, real thing within the UK in, in a pretty short period of time. And I think it's going to be it's going to be a really interesting nation issue, national issue that's going to come in because I think you're going to have so so what what I think is going to happen. Um, you'll have a number of different bits of technology coming in. You'll have one that as soon as you can go out and you can buy an autonomous car that that will drive and it will pick me up from the pub or it will drive and it will grab my kids from somewhere. As soon as as soon as that technology arrives and it's purchasable. Why would you buy anything else? Yeah, you know, that that's the reality of it. If you if you had one option of a car that will drive itself and when you want and you can drive when you want and one that will just never do that, just no one will buy the never do that. So I think you've got this really interesting point that one or two vendors will start to release cars with true autonomous cap- capability, and the rest of the market, if they haven't got there, you know, this for me, if this was was me, you would almost be in this like bet the company perspective because if you can't get if you don't get there, then you would have to either you have to question the long uh, the long term longevity of any car company that that can't go on. So you've got this one kind of interesting rush that's happening, and then two, I think there's going to be a great deal of interest around the localization of training. So if you take um, so imagine autonomous vehicles roll out, we we roll the clock forward five years or so, and you get to a hypothetical situation where 
you know, you might be able to use autonomous vehicles in uh, Denmark because they've done the training for Denmark, they've done the localization for Denmark. But, you know, you cross over from Copenhagen into Malmo into Sweden and suddenly autonomous vehicles don't work because the, the localization hasn't been done. And yeah, if, I, if you get to this almost point where the governments of those companies will start to request and demand that autonomous systems work in both of them, because the just the productivity benefits that I feel we'll get from true autonomous vehicles or effectively true um, uh, vector space representation of the physical world, both in autonomous vehicles and in all the other technologies that lie with it, is is going to be amazing. I mean, the you know the fact when when effectively autonomous cars are the the biggest robots that we can interact with and i think once we're once we trust them to you know put our children in and drive 70 miles an hour down large motorways the the move from that to having a robot which is better at you know, cleaning a street or packing shelves or all those things i think is very very close to this. so i think it's going to be one of these one of the most transformative things we have coming actually well that's what i was going to question you on in terms of when you said you know picking your kids up from school picking up from the pub and doing all these things um it's the trust element, right? So, would you, yeah. do you do you think that people will trust it for you to pick your kids up and take them to school rather than you physically, you know, human error and all that, taking your kids yeah. to school? I mean, that's a massive trust exercise. I mean, right? it's it's interesting. I think, um, and I think part of it will be how you build that trust over. I mean, I've got long my driving being good or not doesn't matter. I've got elements of trust in my driving. Yeah, my wife's driving, my family's driving. If that makes sense. Um, because I can see some of the signs that they understand. So, you know, if I'm in a car, say I'm in a car with uh, my parents, I can look at my parents. I can tell that they're paying attention to the road around them. I can tell that, you know, they that they understand what's going on. And if, if say, for example, I suddenly thought they didn't know what was going on, I would almost break that that trust. And I would say, well, I'm, yeah, I'm not safe here. I'm getting out. Or, you know, when you've been in a car with a, I'm sure you've been at some point in your life in a car with, with a friend who you've just thought, ah, I'm not. I'm not as keen on this driving. This is this is not what I <laughs> what I ideally like. Um, not naming names. Think, no, exactly, exactly. Like, yeah, there's definitely some people I could I could name who've, uh, who've been terrible like that, but, but I won't. Um, but if you think about it, so much of it is off the the visual clues and the interactivity that they give. The fact that you can see that they're paying attention. The fact you can see that they're reacting correctly. And I think it's really interesting when we look at autonomous vehicles of the ui design that's going to have to give you the same safety because i can't see you know there's not a robot physically sitting there who's kind of i can see their head moving around so i have to have some kind of representation of seeing what the robot sees effectively to give me that that assurance and i think that's one of the things that you know if i look at both mobilized prototypes and if i look at what what uh, tesla have done with their kind of on-screen display of showing the cars around you i think actually that's a really important step of building a ui that gives you trust in what's happened you know would i would i sit in my when my car's on autopilot driving along if it was a completely blank screen with a speedo on it i would find it very very scary and i don't know if i would personally do that but the fact that you're sitting there with an image of the car an image of the lanes you know an image of all the cars around you in in relative fidelity um i think that's the way that you build up trust over time um you know, do I do I trust autonomous vehicles or will I trust autonomous vehicles over people? Um, I think they'll be far, far orders of magnitude safer, if I'm honest, mm -hmm. I think. And I think even before fully autonomous comes in. Um, so we do a fair bit of stuff with ADAS, so advanced driver uh, assistance, basically. So things like um, seatbelt pretensioning and uh, front impact pretension. 
and already that's having huge huge changes within the terms of safety so yeah i, I mean i think in the the very the the only thing that's a shame or at least i find hard because i am a petrol head at heart i've you know i've driven since i was 16 i've, I've loved cars um i think if i think to when my children in to 20 years from now i think the concept of driving your own car will just be something that is is just seen as a, a strange thing that people might do as a kind of hobby on the side and i think the joy actually, of driving yeah yeah and i think i think that will very quickly um the market will react to it once driverless cars are orders of magnitude safer than non-driverless car oh, autonomous cars sorry um i feel there'll be so many knock-on implications in terms of insurance in terms of pricing all of this stuff will happen and then you know you could get into really interesting questions i think about large-scale car ownership i think is going to change i think you know if i look at the layout of my of the city like my outside my house is you know, full of this normal residential street it's full of cars we just that's what we accept um i think actually autonomous vehicles will really change the layout of the city that we lie in and you know with all of this it's, it's sometimes it's difficult i think to understand the change and the impact some of these things can happen but if you think you know the iphone is only 12 years old or so i think about 12 years 12 13 years or so now mm-hmm. um and actually, the impact that it's had over that time, where it's changed the whole layouts of cities, the change where people work, I genuinely feel that um, autonomous vehicles and the just the physical space to rep- vector space representations that they allow will change the world in in that ways or, or possibly more. Honestly. But yeah, I could talk about this for hours, as I'm sorry, <laughs> uh, so you can realise. No, it's it's interesting. It is really interesting. I feel like we could probably do a whole podcast just on that subject. But um, bring it back to to the whole uh, point of today. And in terms of Amazon specifically, what are some yeah. of the trends you're seeing when it comes to EC2? Yeah, definitely. Um, so what are some of the big trends that are happening within EC2? So so one, I mean, EC2 is really interesting. So if you look back, um, so Amazon's, AWS is a really new company. It's one of the, the interesting things that people, people underestimate. So um, we're younger than Uber, which always just blows my mind. So you could have gone Uber before you could have um, spun up a server in AWS. And if I look back at, you know, how did AWS start and what did we run? Um, back in 2006, there was just one singular instance. There was just an instance. There was it, there was no there was no diversity in it. There was just one singular thing. Um, if I look now, we're about five five hundred and something or so instances that you can use. So you know, there's been this this huge growth in terms of the number of instances that people use and the diversity that sits within those instances. And that's everything from you know TT micros up to to C C six triple XLs. Um, so one of the big things that we're seeing is this um, this almost heterogeneity within within um, infrastructure usage. So people before would just tend to you know I remember my my days as a Linux sysadmin. We would just have lots and lots of effectively um, cookie cutter DL380s that would just be racked and sacked, you know, pretty much identical DCs coming down. Um, I think when people first went into cloud, they kind of did the same thing. They did, yes, the instant types would be sometimes smaller, sometimes larger, but they would be predominantly Intel instances. They'd be all realistic, give or take, all in- Intel instances, all exactly the same. We're really seeing that change quite rapidly at the moment, where we're seeing people. You know, we we Intel are a fantastic partners and they do fantastic performance in certain things, um, but we're definitely seeing people moving to this kind of mixture of instances, and that's in terms of CPU architectures. You know, both Intel, AMD, Intel and AMD, we see uh, you know we see people using those and mix them together more. 
Um, huge progress coming in with Graviton at the moment. So the move to ARM has been really interesting. I say this on a now on a on an ARM uh, Mac at the same time. You know, everything randomly. I now have far more ARM devices in front of me than than any other any other CPU side. So we're seeing really this this kind of almost Cambrian explosion that's happening in the instances that people use. And then also in terms of FPGAs and ASICs. So more and more, we're looking at application-specific instances. So if you're going to do transcoding in the, the cloud, you know, we have lots of people that do real-time transcoding. The best way to do that is using a dedicated transcoding instance, which effectively has a dedicated, um, I believe it's a, even an FPGA or an ASIC, I can't remember the top of my head, I'm afraid, um, but effectively dedicated uh, cards for that workload. And that's something we're just going to see more and more and more. So if I look at... Um, machine learning or inference, definitely the best ways to do that are by using dedicated instances, which are specifically targeted for that job. And, you know, that's something for us that you're going to see that that grow far more even over the next few years, even though I think it's grown a lot. Um, and I think working with our customers to make sure they're using the right type of instance, not just the right size, is a, is a really big, interesting thing that's happening. Um, so that's there's that. Uh, what other big things I think are, are kind of happening within within the cloud at the moment? Um, so the move to containers is a is a really big thing. You know, every everyone we talk to pretty much is looking at some kind of containers technology, and whether that's you know either their own bring their own containers, whether that's ECS, EKS, whether that's things like Fargate. Um, you know, definitely getting to a position where the majority of workloads are running on containers is is kind of something that I think will will be pretty soon and if you think that's a that's a massive massive change the whole of an industry has moved within a couple of short years to from you you run up a linux instance you install things on linux or windows instance um to effectively you build a container that becomes your kind of um level of product that your level of granularity that goes to the whole system and that that's been really interesting we're we're seeing people with interesting challenges around that so we have you know we have huge huge customers with hundreds of thousands of nodes um, so we see interesting challenges that come within scale. Um, and also we see interesting challenges that come within skill sets. So, you know, everyone's going to Kubernetes, I'm sure you're aware, or lots of people are going to Kubernetes. There aren't the skills out there in terms of people sometimes to, to do it. Um, and also sometimes I think people are almost going too far down the, the roll your own um, approach. Now, if I look at my view on, so my incorrect view about Amazon before I joined was almost that you, you go to first you go to fargate then you go to ecs then you go to eks and there's always this this progression that i thought existed um since being internally actually some of our largest most successful customers are, are on ecs and i've started to realize more that they are separate unique product offerings for, for good things so we, we definitely definitely talked to, to a bunch of folk about that so along those same sorts of lines then and uh, in terms of what you see growing in the next 12 months that was more about the ec2 and the cloud and the tech side but what about specific sectors growth in the next 12 months what's your opinion yeah on yeah definitely um you know it's been an interesting year i mean it's been an interesting two years would probably be uh would be fair to say inverted commas yeah exactly exactly it's been a it's, it's been a it's been a strange few years um you know, which which hopefully elements of the the challenges that we had over the last few years are kind of mostly behind us. I think you know, you've got strange macroeconomic situations at the moment in terms of inflation, in terms of things that are, that are happening overall. Um, mm. We definitely, I think, have seen some startups struggling because there is the you know it is harder in the current time. Sadly, it's harder to raise capital, so I think there's more 
pressures on some startups, especially startups which were, you know, burning money hand over fist, um, I think have been a bit more, have struggled a bit more, if I'm honest. Um, industries that I see going into, in the enterprise, for me, enterprise is one of the really big opportunities. You know, we've got good penetration with enterprises, but there is a very, very large way to go. And I, and I think cloud in general, people sometimes underestimate the overall penetration of it currently. Um, I think our, so our uh, CEO, Sandy Jassy, uh, a couple of years, a year ago, back at reInvent, I think gave the figure that we were about six or 7% penetration in cloud. So there's, you know, there's a huge, huge way to go at the moment. There is still lots and lots of relatively inefficient on-prem stuff sitting around there. So, you know, for me, one of the big sectors will be helping enterprise at scale to move um, kind of all into cloud. I think that's a, that's going to be a really big change. Um, John, seeing a load did you of... say that you got 6% penetration in cloud then? That is it. That is it. So, so globally, in terms of the addressable market, and this, this was, I mean, this is the stat as of two years ago, um, we were about 6% penetration. You know, cloud, cloud is, no, as much as everyone talks about it, and it sometimes feels that all is out there and all is used is cloud, we are we are in the beginning of it all honestly it's 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 far earlier days with far more opportunities than than i think people realize sometimes which is just which is just interesting because you know you can definitely be in the um almost the central the the london tech bubble where all of a sudden it feels that everyone is using the cloud everyone is using kubernetes and everyone is you know doing these devops sre things the reality is um you know there is a lot more to, there's a lot more distance to go than i think people know sometimes um, and that's a really good thing. And that's that's one of the things that we're, we're kind of here to help talk to people and help explain where we are. Because I think otherwise, if if you don't have a good understanding of where the rest of the market is, sometimes it can seem like a really difficult place to to grow and to transform. Because, you know, we want we want to be honest with people about where where the industry is overall. And I think that's a viewpoint that we that we have. So, yeah, there's a there's a lot more room for, for it all to grow at the moment. So if you're at six percent and in my opinion, you know, Amazon and AWS is probably one of the more widely used public clouds. That must mean that if you're only at 6%, there's a, like, well, I'll just repeat what you're saying. There's a massive share of the market still left to go after that like, legacy clunky infrastructure knocking around that needs to be migrated over or something. There really, really is a massive, massive opportunity that sits in front of it. And I think, you know, that's for, that's for everyone. So that's the whole ecosystem. That's our partners. That's our customers. You know, the, the efficiencies I think people can gain through moving to cloud are, are extraordinary. We have done some really interesting reports about the the net GDP that we that we help contribute towards in the UK. Um, so yeah, I think there's I think there's a load of good opportunities. I mean, yeah, the amount of if I if I think really on the interactions that I have with things technical and where they're where they're pulling things from, you know, on a daily basis, there's a bunch of mainframes that I'm interacting with, or at least mainframe processing that's interacting through. There's all kinds of whether that's either through um, you know, we, oh, there, was, there was the public, um, very public issue before with Universal Credit, for example, where the Universal Credit system could only be updated. I think it was one once a year, if I've got it correctly. And you know, all of those are because of these large, slow um, legacy IT systems sit around. And I think you know there is a really good opportunity for for efficiencies that can be gained through it. You know, I think. Um, so, I mean, that brings on to one of the other things that we're, we're doing a bunch with at the moment of high performance computing. I think um, so HPCs for me are one of the most interesting things because it's kind of applied side. Yeah, that's where there's not many times within my job that I, I get opportunities where I might actually help to cure cancer or to, you know, come up with new vaccines. And actually through high performance computing, we do get those opportunities. And it's it's really interesting when you see where the HPC market has been before of this, you know, we decide so 
for example, we're at Drug Drug Discovery Incorporated or whatever company that that may be, mm. um, and we turn around and say, what we want to do is we want to do a load of large um, chemistry simulations. We really wanted to try and discover the new new wonder drug that will, you know, solve solve my impending baldness, for example. And we think <laughs> yeah, that's that's something that we want to we want to go through. I mean, the 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 cadence and the time that it takes to put that together. If you're thinking we need to go and buy a supercomputer to do this, you know, you're talking 36, 40 month lead times to do this. Um, whereas what you can do in the cloud, and also even then, how do I know how do I know the size of the the cluster that I need to do that drug discovery workload or do that that computational fluid dynamics modeling? It's you you, you don't know it until you you do it effectively. And one of the fantastic things that that I like about the cloud is this ability to to spin huge amounts of resources up and then spin them back down. I do think that will change science. We did, um, I did one of the AWS keynotes recently, and within the, um, it was a 45-minute keynote, and within that keynote, we built a supercomputer completely from scratch of 48,000 cores. We run it up, we did some testing, and we shut it all down, and that cost, I think, about $50 or so to do. I mean, we... <laughs> We've done recent, so we did with one of our partners, Yellow Dog. We um, we did a large scale run where we spun up 3.2 million cores on a Sunday afternoon or a Sunday morning, I should say, when when it was all a bit quiet. So we we basically built a supercomputer that could probably get into kind of near the top ten on fastest computers on the planet. And we built it, we did some tests, and we shut it back off again. And you know that capability to do that is just, I think, is really going to be world changing in terms of everything from personalized medicine to healthcare to material science. I think that's a that's one of the things that I have a lot to do at the moment that is, is, is massively, massively exciting for me. Yeah, that is incredible, especially when you talk about, you know, like the kind of uh, curing cancer and you're talking about like the drug discovery, those sorts of things. I think that is where you really start to hit the nail home in terms of what the cloud can achieve. Yeah. Um, and it, it's like if you take, so the, the fastest computer on the planet at the moment is... Um, a supercomputer in Japan. I actually think there might be one faster now, so it's number two now. There's a there's a fast one, but but was for a while the Fugaku supercomputer. Uh, super in fact, it was designed to um, to simulate and to understand earthquakes in Japan to lessen the amount of earthquakes, which is a very noble cause. I mean, I've no, I think that's a very good thing to do. Yeah. But it took twelve years to build. That's so for twelve years, effectively. Okay, yes, there'll be some benefit along the lines, but for twelve years. Yeah, we couldn't. That prediction technology wasn't there, and so I think more and more it's that time to results that's going to come in within the world of high performance computing um, that is just extremely interesting. And I think taking that and being able to democratize it down, like we we've, we've recently had um, talked about this yesterday. So we recently had our um, our, our loft conversion in our house because we've had more children, so we need more rooms, as, as you can kind of imagine. And yeah, if I look at the the modeling of heat and insulation that's done at the moment, it's, it's hideously basic, um, but nothing stops in the future. You know, a check my, check my heating.com, for example, I imagine turning up where you, you feed in your structural buildings and it does a, a real modeling, you know, real CFD modeling of actually where the heat goes, how it would do, how it maps it. Um, and you can imagine this time where to do that, your results come back in, in minutes or in seconds even by spinning up hundreds and hundreds of thousands of cores of, of compute and then spinning that same thing down very, very quickly. And I think that is a go, really going to be a real game changer for science, for the way we work, live our lives. Um, and it's probably one of the things that, you know, if I look at what excites me for the next 12 months within AWS, it's, it's, that's probably one of the most interesting things that I get to do. It's, it's genuinely pretty, pretty cool, actually. 
So outside of HPC, what else is uh, Amazon investing in? What other new business sectors or areas? Yeah, I mean, we're doing loads of stuff with sustainability. So I think um, sustainability for, for us is is really key. You know, you're seeing things, for example, um, you're seeing internal investment. So the um, we've turned our London hub, we're putting in a, a, a very large number, I can't remember the number, but it's a very large number of electric cargo bikes for delivery. So we're really looking at sustainability for ourselves. We're now uh, we've got a number of large wind farm projects. So we're building a couple of wind farms in the UK to, to get more sustainable power, which again, I think is a great thing. So kind of our inward looking sustainability is key. And then also what we're doing more and more is working with our customers to help them reach their sustainability goals. I and mean, I think it's, if I feel like if we get this right, um, there are such unbelievably good prospects for the world as a whole. You know, computing at the moment, moving to more sustainable architectures is really, really key for all of us to do. And, you know what i what i quite like i mean i, I get got my friend one of my friends prefers to me sometimes as a, a capitalist hippie because you know <laughs> i i'm i kind of i agree with I, I think the world's a really good thing i want to make it a better place for everyone i think you know I, I i kind of like that mentality of we're all in the same boat together but at the same time i think the best way of doing that is through the free market and capitalism i just think that is that is at the moment the most efficient way of allocating capital and uh, doing it correctly um and I suppose what I think, what I really like with the sustainability business that we're, we're pushing in the UK, it's, you know, how do we get to a position where we reduce the, the bills and the cost for customers? So we reduce their cost of IT, but at the same time, we, we do that by making more sustainable, greener, using less energy. And that's something that I'm, I'm really, really excited about. So if you think of where, where the investments, how, or how to do that, you know, if you're looking at it from the other side, how, how do I deliver this? Um, it really is about using Graviton using ARM, using specific instances we have. I mean, by far the largest cost of any running tech system is the power. The power is, is it's really interesting. If you, um, if you find online the, the cost of running a data center, and it's really interesting because the cost of running a data center is all power. The people are a rounding error in terms of actually what it, what it costs. It's a small rounding error of people, lots of equipment, um, and then power is the thing that costs it. So anything that we can do to reduce power utilization and that's either through more more specific hardware in terms of ASICs and FPGAs, you know, more sustainable architecture in terms of uh, things like Graviton, or more efficient architecture in terms of things like serverless and you know some of the the, the function side of things. Um, so yeah, so I'm really I'm really happy. We get to work with a lot of different interesting customers. You know, we're helping people write in. Um, so we're helping people go through their annual reports and actually write in so, um, sustainability targets. And then the bit that I think is really fun. It, it comes down to my team and some of my specialists to help them deliver, you know, against those, those really tough targets. The more we can do that and scale it out, um, the better for everyone. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, Graviton there. So I just wanted to go back to that. And you, you've covered this a little bit, John, but do you want to just yeah. tell us how you'd be able to run more efficient workloads in the cloud yeah, yeah, and obviously reference Graviton as well? Definitely. definitely. So, um, so, I mean, yeah, at, at its high level, what is Graviton is probably a good start, starting point. Um, so if you if you go back a bit, we um, so we purchased a company called Annapurna Labs. Um, so Annapurna Labs is a silicon chip designer. So they design um, custom silicon for us. They've done all kinds of interesting stuff in terms of the Nitro architecture, which underpins all of the, the EC2 instances. They've done some really interesting stuff in terms of networking. Um, and then we, we basically put them towards working on getting ARM CPUs um, and building them into you know, server grade pieces that are, that are really interesting. Before that, there have been server server grade ARM CPUs with things like the HP Moonshot for, for some folks that might remember that from quite some time ago. 
but they tended to be kind of you know the, the, the same chip that you have in your cell phone um but effectively that put into your large large server places um where we really changed up the game um was putting high powered um so high powered in terms of the computing power um server level cpus running the same instruction set of arm um but at the same time being dramatically less in terms of power utilization and you think you know why is that um because if you think the where arm has been birthed from has really been or at least modern arm has been birthed really from the seat from the um the mobile phone industry where power was tantamount power's most important thing of having efficiency with low power so we've kind of grown up from this low power usage piece and then we've moved into a point where we've also had the high high performance side of things um so that that's kind of one of the big things i mean it's gone through a number of iterations so we've we had graviton one which was um performance wise was was kind of well, it wasn't there it just wasn't a it wasn't a hugely high performance chip you know it wasn't comparable to, to intel and amd graviton 2 um which came out a couple of years ago and that really gave parity with um with the intel and amd chips of, of the day and then now graviton 3 which we announced the last reinvent um and that really pushes that performance envelope further forward i mean you're talking 20 30 percent more performance than comparable in, uh, instances from uh some of our other instance types um, and about 20% lower cost. And you kind of work that all out and you end up in a situation that you save certainly about 30% is we've, we're seeing relatively frequently. So you almost have this 30% cost saving, but then more than that, you are saving a huge amount in terms of the actual power usage on that server itself. So yeah, there's, there's all kinds of really, really good benefits that come into that sustainability cost that goes in. So yes, yeah, so it's, it's really interesting. And you know, the fantastic thing, because of the likes of the Raspberry Pi um, and all the, the fact I mean, the Raspberry Pi is the most interesting thing because everyone went out a few years. I mean, I'm sure people remember a few years ago, I went out and bought Raspberry Pis. Um, all of those are on ARM. And so as a result of that, all the development tooling and all this kind of this tool chain that was needed to build ARM server software kind of started to explode. So it kind of started with the Raspberry Pi. Then Graviton's come in, all the, the other server server ARM instances, where there's a, you know, a variety of them. In, and in the other hyperscalers now have, have uh, started with ARM instances. So you've almost got this, development is starting to get there the servers have come in you know you've had the mac very famous very very publicly apple moving over to using arm on the desktop as well so again you know the fact that if i need to those same tool chains will work on my mac as they work on my graviton server um we just see it as being this really really you know it is one of the most interesting bits of growth that people can do it's really easy to pull things and get them running so you know a load of my personal projects that i run for various reasons i've now moved all of those over to graviton because I thought I'd give it a go, and it just most of them actually just ran without any anything whatsoever. It just appeared the same, but a cheaper instance type. Mm. Quite a lot of what we're talking about seems to link back to sustainability. So I'm getting a, I'm getting an impression that it's not just where Amazon is investing a lot; it's actually where your heart lies a lot of the time as well. Yeah, I want to do I want to do good for the world. Like if it's the reality of it, you know, I might as well. Um, you know, I'm I'm driven by trying to make something different about this world. I've worked really hard to get here, and I think I've managed to get into this very privileged. I mean, quite honestly, I've got myself into a very uh, lucky, privileged position. Um, and I think part of part of what I want to achieve is leaving the world a better place for my kids than it than it is now. I, you know, I, I mean, I say sitting here looking at the 32 degrees on the uh, the thermometer in the room. You know, I do definitely have worries around. Um, global warming and the best the best way for us to help with that is to is to reduce our, our energy usage i think that's the thing. and you know getting to a point where we can do that 
and we can make it cheaper for people. That just, you know, we 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 talked with a um a, GF, a big big um uh consulting firm where we went through and we explained Graviton, we explained some of the um the the offering around it, how it how it works, that makes sense. And I'll never forget their their AWS lead for the UK turned around and said after we talked all this, she said, why isn't everyone just using this? Why are we not why are all our workloads not not doing this? So we kind of said, Yeah, this is this is you know, this is it. There's no, there's no, there's no catch really. It's not us trying to do anything untoward, or, or there's no, no concept of we're trying to move people and just stick them into this. Um, it's just generally good for everyone. And I think now, you know, I do see the market really moving. I think, yeah, you know, if we have this same conversation in two, three years from now, I think it will be amazing by how quickly the landscape will have moved to, um, to a kind of more wide variety of things. And that's that's pretty that's pretty fun for me. And you know, I suppose. One of the things that that we do around that is um, some of our spot on our flexible compute workloads, which are tending to to really go over to that as well. You know that ability to effectively take that unused cloud resources that are that are kind of spinning there, not necessarily doing nothing, but they're they're unused and burst workloads into that for short periods of time. Again, that helps add to this sustainability, this this zero waste IT um, piece that we're trying to go into. So I I know um, we've got one of my uh, and the folk who works for me is fantastic, Mike Duke. So I know he's, um, I think he might be talking to you at some point. Um, yeah, so you teed that up perfectly. My final closing comment was going to be to kind of uh, mention spot instances with Mike because that's coming up uh, next month. But do you want to just oh, give us a sort of overview on what spot instances are? Yeah, def- definitely. So, um, so spot instances for us are interruptible instances effectively. So it's um, the vastly reduced in terms of cost um, but it's instances that if someone else uses it and they're willing to pay for it, you are effectively um, not evicted off, but your 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 uh, workload stops. Um, but for things, you know, I mean, what, what interests me is we deal with people doing, so chaos engineering, I find chaos engineering really, really interesting. F1 saw Netflix and they saw some of the really interesting they did with chaos engineering. Mm-hmm. And so people started building these big chaos, like um, Gremlin or Chaos Monkey, all these big systems where you go in and you go, right, what we're going to do is we're going to set things up and we're going to start, killing your dev systems or going to kill your prod systems occasionally and we're just going to see you know make it be okay with failure so fantastic idea exactly what we should be doing but people do that and at the same time don't use interruptible instances underneath i mean genuinely the the biggest thing if if people are watching this or listening to this the biggest thing you can probably the biggest things you can do if you want to reduce and get efficiency from aws is use some of these capabilities because you know moving moving your dev workloads over into spot will be the probably the biggest singular thing you can do for cost saving by a by a long way and it's it's really interesting if you you know one of the uh so running back in my days of running accenture i wish i'd known this then i'm totally honest with you um (laughs) because we would often we'd often be asked to explain the business benefits of doing devops and what's the where's the business case for it where's the where's the money saving actually one of the best business cases around moving to to a devops way of working with Kubernetes and orchestration is that underlying that you can use Spot as the compute for a subtrade. That will set that will that is the best bit of the business case I I think that you can make as a a definite one. Um, and we really want to help Mike. I know Mike's doing a lot of really good work of helping folk understand that better. Um, so yes, I'm sure you have a fantastic conversation with him as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, thanks for the introduction. Well, John, I, I definitely feel like we could uh, we could circle back on a number of these things we've spoken about today. I feel like we've just literally scratched the surface and I haven't had a minute to sort of take a breath. So we should definitely do a round two on this. But that yeah. basically brings brings us to a close. Uh, I'll let you go and have some lunch now because I know it's getting there a bit later in the day. But um, any final closing comments from you? 
no just just uh, to th thank you for the opportunity you know really really happy to talk through this um you know anyone any, anyone has any comments questions anything like that they're welcome to uh to find me on linkedin i've got a pretty unique name or find me on twitter and and ping me a thing uh, we're hiring I, I probably should say that you know as, as everyone else in this it's always good for me to put a shout out so uh, we're hiring all kinds of interesting business leads um and you know that's just, i think the thing to if I was on the other side of it, it's it's taking advantage of all the the fantastic services that that sit within AWS. I think is a is a really good opportunity for everyone, hopefully. So yeah, but thank you very much for the opportunity. Been hope it's been um, good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it, and we'll definitely do uh, do a round two. But thanks so much for carving out time in your diary today. I appreciate it, and uh, I'll catch you offline. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks. Everybody.